Sunday. That's news to me as much as to you, but there we are. And uh, I just thought coming up to this that I would preach on this passage, Acts 15, in the light of that. It was a joy yesterday at Churches Council in Moira to see three new churches uh, joining the Association of Baptist Churches in Ireland. Katie is one that we had a hand in from Armagh, uh, reaching out from our church in Armagh to plant in Katie over recent years, and that's going really well. And then Bill Turbot was a church plant from my former church in Cavan, uh, which we planted about 30 years ago, and then Bill Turbot has just come into existence in the last few years, and we really rejoice in what's going on there. And then Passage West from Douglas Church in County Cork. Three new churches added to our association yesterday, and we praise God for that. I was particularly encouraged to see my old church, Cavan, planting Bill Turbot, and my current church, Armagh, planting Katie, and to see them all coming into membership of the association, because I believe that churches working together for the sake of the gospel is the picture that we find in the New Testament. A year ago, Paul McAdam, who was my assistant then, who's now the pastor in the church in Katie, asked me to address this question in the Katie Church. So this time last year, we're asking the question of a new church plant, why the need for the association? Why would Katie Baptist Church want to join the Association of Baptist Churches in Ireland? And we could give all sorts of reasons, but the only important reason for joining must come from God's Word itself. Do you find independent churches in the New Testament just doing their own thing? Or do you find a picture of gospel churches run by local pastors and elders reaching out with the gospel in their own area and caring for the believers in their own area, but also having a real concern for what God was doing in His world through like-minded churches in other areas? In other words, do we see independency or do we also see interdependency in the New Testament? And I believe that we see both. Now, I could be accused of teaching my granny to suck eggs when I come to talk about this in Great Victoria Street Church this morning, because all the assembly meetings used to be held here in the former building uh, in years gone by. But maybe things have moved on here, and I see there's a, a younger congregation here now. So I'm bringing you to Acts chapter 15 to show you an example of churches working together to answer the question, why do we need the association? Well, Acts chapter 15 is a very important passage of Scripture, and thanks to those who read it earlier. It details the events surrounding the first church's council in Jerusalem. So it's a VIP chapter, a very important passage of Scripture, because the gospel itself is at stake in this passage. And that's why these churches met together to discuss this very important matter. They associated around the gospel. And that's what we seek to do here in Ireland, both north and south. We associate around the gospel. You can travel throughout Ireland today, and you will not find two Baptist churches that are identical. And that's a good thing. But you will find them all preaching the same gospel, the same way of salvation, because we associate for the sake of the gospel. So whether it's the work of Baptist missions, which I've been involved in, or the work of the Irish Baptist College where I studied, or Baptist Youth where I was involved in Baptist Youth Evangelism teams, or Baptist Women that I haven't been involved in. This is what is held in common. We want to see people saved through believing the gospel. We had our church's council yesterday discussing various issues, but the issue that the first church's council in Jerusalem had to discuss was this. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
or is salvation by faith plus something else. That's what this first church council had to decide. Did it involve keeping the law, or was it salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? The context for this chapter and for the church's council in Jerusalem is the end of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus, and indeed to Asia Minor, what we would today call Turkey. And that journey came to an end in Acts chapter 14 and verse 28. And at this point in history, as well as the mother church in Jerusalem, there were also new churches scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, right up to Caesarea. There was one in Damascus in Syria, and a very missionary-minded church in Antioch of Syria. And as a result of the first missionary journey, there were now churches on the island of Cyprus, as well as in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, all in Turkey. But the crucial point to bear in mind at this moment in history is that there were probably for the first time more believers from a Gentile background in the New Testament church than there were from a Jewish background. The balance of power had just shifted. The balance of power had just shifted. So what's really going on behind the scenes in Acts chapter 15 is a power struggle between those who see themselves as the fathers of the church down in Jerusalem from a Jewish background and those like Paul and Barnabas, the missionaries to the Gentiles, who now represent the newer churches which are springing up across the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And the gospel itself is at stake at this point in the church's history. It's quite likely that Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians in or around this time, just before or just after this Jerusalem council. And just listen to what he said to them about the danger of adopting another gospel in Galatians 1 and verses 6 to 9. He said this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So he uses very strong language and deal. There is only one way of salvation. There is only one gospel. If salvation is not by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we have no gospel at all. As soon as you add any human effort or merit to it, you've actually destroyed the gospel. You've emptied the gospel of its power. Either salvation is by grace or it's by works, but it can't be both. And this chapter deals with the most serious matter to face the church in its 20-year history. It threatened to divide and destroy the church, and so it needed to be sorted out. It was all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me take a run through this chapter as quickly as I can, and let's see what happened in that first council in Jerusalem for the churches. First of all, we look at telling the good news, telling the good news in verses 1 to 4. Look what was happening in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And that's the core issue that in verse 2 brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Now, let me point out before we go any further that there is nothing wrong with having debate within the church. It's good to discuss matters that we hold too strongly. 
especially points of doctrine. We don't live in a dictatorship or a totalitarian regime as far as the church is concerned, and it's sad whenever such debates become sharp disputes. But it does happen. Even here in the New Testament, Acts 15 and verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So there was sharp dissension or sharp dispute among them. Also down in 15 verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed elsewhere. So there was sharp disagreement or sharp dispute even among colleagues in gospel ministry. So what did they do about it? Well, in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas were appointed by their local church in Antioch up north, along with a number of other believers, and they were sent down to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and elders there about this very important question. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or is salvation by faith plus the works of the law? And in this case, circumcision. Is circumcision necessary too, if someone is to be truly saved? In other words, culturally, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? And it's the Antioch church who sends Paul and Barnabas on their way in verse 3. Just as they sent them out on mission to Asia in chapter 13, so now they send them up to Jerusalem to deal with this important matter of doctrine in chapter 15. And this gave Paul and Barnabas the opportunity to speak in many churches along the way on their journey in places like Phoenicia and Samaria. Just as they'd done in Antioch in Acts 14.27, they told how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so now in these churches, they tell how the Gentiles had been converted in Acts 15 and verse 3. So this was the hot topic of the moment as Paul, Barnabas, and the others made their way to Jerusalem. And notice the effect that it had on all who heard this news. It says in verse 3, this news made all the brothers very glad. And when they actually got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, by the apostles, by the elders, and again they reported everything that God had done through them. And so the whole church was getting to hear about what God was doing in Asia as far as, as far as the conversion of many Gentiles was concerned. And they told the other churches that good news. And what a joy it was yesterday morning to hear the stories about how those three new churches came into being in recent years. We left encouraged and built up and sent out and enthused to get on with the task of sharing the good news of the gospel again as we heard about how people in recent months and years have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just in this past month or two, in Katy, two men who were notorious in the area as uh, drunkards and drug addicts have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their lives have been transformed, and the whole town's talking about it, and they're coming along faithfully to the new church in Katy. What a joy it is to share that with you this morning and to hear that in the council yesterday morning, that God is at work transforming lives of people who are well-known in their areas for other reasons, but now they're talking about how they've come to faith in Christ. So telling the good news is the first thing in verses 1 to 4, but then we have undermining the good news in verse 5. Some people in the churches in Judea weren't happy. 
Emotions were beginning to run high. Some of them felt their blood boiling within them as they heard these stories. And now it erupts to the surface in verse 5. These people were believers, but their background was the party of the Pharisees. So their background was in legalism. And they stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. In other words, not good enough to hear these testimonies this morning, but these people have to get circumcised the same as we have been. Otherwise, we can't accept them into the church. And sadly, this has always been the case in the Christian church. There will always be those who claim to be believers in the gospel of God's grace, that were saved freely by God's grace and not by good works, and yet because their background is in legalism or Phariseeism, they have a tendency to pull others into line to keep their particular set of rules and regulations. Legalism is more a mindset than a theological position. And those who are prone to be perfectionists tend to be legalists, and we have to watch out. It's important for us to recognize the battle that goes on between legalism and grace. And we also need to remember that our gospel is a gospel of grace alone. Therefore, there should be no place for legalism in a gospel church. And yet history tells us that those who have been strongest on preaching the gospel are often the ones who end up in legalism. It's an ongoing battle that we need to be aware of. So how did the early church address it here in this chapter? Well, we're told in verse 6 that the apostles and elders met together to consider this matter. And we're told that it was after much debate, as people were given opportunity to dare their views, that Peter got up to address the gathering. And so here we have him defending the good news in verses 7 to 11. How does the gospel save people? What did Peter believe about this? Verse 7. And after, there, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What does Peter believe about this? Well, he believed that people are saved whenever they hear and believe the message of the gospel, that God is holy and that because of our sins we are separated from God that Jesus, the God-man, came to die for our sins and took our punishment in our place on the cross. And so now we can be forgiven by accepting what Jesus has done on our behalf at that cross. We can be forgiven and become members in God's family simply by hearing and believing the good news of the gospel. So as far as Peter was concerned, all we have to do is hear this message and believe it personally for ourselves. In other words, we need to exercise faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ as being sufficient to save us. That's all we need. Faith alone in Christ alone, and by God's grace we're saved. That's enough. Nothing else is necessary. No pluses are needed. Romans 10:17 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But let's ask a bigger question. What proof is there that simply hearing and believing the gospel is enough to save people? Well, there's a number of points of evidence here. First of all, there's the evidence of conversion, the changed lives of those who have simply heard and believed the gospel. Verse 3, Gentiles had been converted, completely changed, completely transformed by this message. Lives had been changed completely. They'd been turned upside down or they'd been turned the right way up. 
simply by trusting in Christ by faith. They had heard and they believed. That's all they'd done. And the change in their lives was dramatic, and it spoke volumes. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. And sometimes we worry about this legislation that is threatened, this ban on conversion therapy. It's talked about in Stormont. It's talked about in Westminster as well. Sometimes we get concerned about that. And to be quite honest, I don't think we should be concerned about it at all. Because bottom line, it is God who does the converting, not us. And they can say what they like to us. They cannot charge God because God is in control. God does the converting, not us. And you cannot legislate against God. The evidence of conversion, the evidence of changed lives speaks for itself. Secondly, the evidence that the Holy Spirit was received by those who simply heard and believed the gospel. Verse 8. God had shown his acceptance of those who had exercised faith in the gospel by placing his Holy Spirit into their hearts. Ephesians 1, 3, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Think about Cornelius' household, one of those occasions that Peter would have talked about, Acts 10, 44 to 48, where Peter had first experienced Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. It was simply on hearing and believing the gospel that they'd got saved, because the Holy Spirit fell on them before he'd even got finished preaching his sermon. It was taken out of his hands, and God did the work by his Holy Spirit as he moved in their hearts and saved them by grace alone. The evidence the Holy Spirit was received simply by those who heard and believed the gospel. And then the evidence of hearts that were purified by faith on hearing and believing down in verse 9. God made no distinction between a Jew and a Gentile who had believed. He purified each of their hearts simply because they put their faith in Christ, not because of any ceremony or ritual, washing, baptism, or circumcision they may or may not have received. They were simply purified in their hearts, cleansed from their sin by faith alone in Christ alone, the evidence of hearts purified by faith. Verse 14, the evidence that God is calling out a people for himself. This people that God is calling out of the world is his church. It's made up of Jews, made up of Gentiles, made up of people from all kinds of backgrounds around the world. The word for church is ecclesia, ex calio. It means to call out, and that's what God is doing, calling out a people for himself. Those people who put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone become part of God's redeemed people, his church, become part of his covenant people by faith. So a Jew and Gentile in the Acts, or a Catholic or a Protestant today in Ireland, a Muslim or a Hindu around the world, all become part of God's people, the church, in exactly the same way. It's by faith alone in Christ alone, all because of God's grace, not because any of us have earned it or merited it. And that brings us to Peter's conclusion in verse 11. On the basis of all those points of evidence, Peter could summarize the position as follows. He says in verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are, Jew and Gentile alike. Salvation is by God's grace, His unmerited favor alone. And God's salvation is for those who don't think they deserve it. And so it's for you here this morning. 
to try to work for it by keeping the law or by being circumcised or even by being baptized or in any other way would mean salvation would not be by grace but by merit. If salvation is to be by God's grace, then it can only be by faith alone in Christ alone. So that's what Peter had to say at this church council. And then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas endorse the good news. Paul and Barnabas endorse the good news. You know, sometimes people try to drive a wedge between what the apostle Paul taught in the New Testament and what Peter, one of the original 12 apostles, taught. But it's important to notice that on this foundational truth of the gospel, they were absolutely at one with each other. And I believe they were in other things too. Because no sooner has Peter given his speech than Paul and Barnabas hold the audience in rapt attention as they tell of their recent ex- exploits in Asia. The whole assembly became silent, verse 12, as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. They were amazed at it themselves, and their listeners were equally amazed. But if God was pleased to perform signs and wonders of salvation among the Gentiles, just as He had done among the Jews, then this was further evidence that God accepts Gentiles on exactly the same basis as Jews. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that God works. So Paul and Barnabas had plenty of recent stories to back up the evidence that Peter had just presented. And that brings us to James's summary of the good news, and that's verses 13 to 21. Who was James? Well, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church by this stage. We believe he was a half-brother of our Lord Jesus. And as chairman of the church's council, it's his job to summarize all that has just been discussed. And he does this in verse 13 following. Brothers, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. So here he's referring to Peter's account of Cornelius and his household being the first Gentiles to respond to the gospel of God's grace. And he goes on to give the biblical basis for this in verse 15. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, after this I will return and will rebuild David's fallen tent. In other words, that refers to Jews. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And yet in the same context, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. So the Old Testament talked about how God would raise up a people of Israel's fallen tent, David's fallen tent, the Jews, but he would unite them together with Gentiles who trust in his name. So having carefully considered the evidence of how God accepts the Gentiles who believe on exactly the same basis as the Jews who believe, and having listened to how Paul and Barnabas have been blessed to see many conversions, and having found biblical warrant for all they've said and done, James gives his conclusion in verse 19. He says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles her turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Why? For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues 
on every Sabbath. And that was their conclusion. Not to make it any more difficult for Gentiles to be converted. No pluses. Not to insist that they should be circumcised or become Jews. No pluses. But simply to accept them as Christians, like themselves, on the basis of personal faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the only stipulation they put on them was to ask them to bear in mind the scruples of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Because Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ couldn't cope with Gentile believers indulging in food that had been polluted by idols. And they couldn't cope with Gentile believers indulging in sexual immorality, nor should they. And they couldn't cope if they went to a church lunch and knew that the meat had come from animals that were not killed in a kosher way that didn't have the blood properly drained out of them. And those were the only three stipulations that they put to their Gentile fellow believers who were turning to Christ. And they were really matters of cross-cultural sensitivity. The couple earlier on who were telling us about heading out to Kenya tomorrow will face all kinds of cross-cultural issues as they go. And they will have to learn to be sensitive to brothers and sisters in Christ coming from a different background, seeing things differently, but being united together on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There has to be respect for weaker brothers, those who'd come from a strict Jewish background. And all of this was an attempt to keep unity within the church. Now that the Gentile believers were increasing in number beyond those who'd come from a Jewish background. And what was the outcome to all of this? Well, the whole church unites around the good news of the gospel in the remainder of our passage this morning, 22 to 35. Now that everything had been agreed, the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, together with the whole church, thought it would be a good idea to write a letter from the church's council and to appoint certain representatives to take this letter to the various churches that had already been planted in the rest of Asia. So two men were chosen from Jerusalem, Judas and Silas, and they were sent with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with this letter from the council. And this is what was contained in the letter, verses 23 to 29. The apostles and elders, they are the ones who are writing it, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements, and then they list them. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. In other words, it would only be for their own good to avoid those things. Do you hear the desire not to put any stumbling block in the way of more Gentiles coming to know the Lord? Do you hear their desire not to put any extra burden on them? as newborn Christians? I wonder, do we have the same concern not to load new believers, newcomers to Christ, with 101 rules and regulations for them to try to follow? Because if we do, it's not the gospel, but legalism that we're introducing them to. 
And the early church stuck to the gospel of God's grace, not legalism, and so must we. So the men were sent off in verse 30, and they headed back to Antioch, where again they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. And look what happened, verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message, that they were accepted as fellow believers with the Jews, even though they came from a Gentile background, even though they had not been circumcised, and they were accepted on the same level as believers. And anything that the wider church required of them in terms of practice was simply for their own good, and they had no other burden to place on them than that. And so Judas and Silas stayed around for a while at Antioch, ministering to and encouraging the believers there. And throughout that period, believers from a Jewish and a Gentile background were enjoying wonderful unity and fellowship in the Lord, united around the gospel of God's grace that had accepted both of them on exactly the same basis, faith in Christ alone. Not law, not works, not legalism, not circumcision. All of those things were secondary. It was faith in Christ alone that had saved them. And at the end of their time in Antioch, Judas and Silas were sent back to Jerusalem with the blessing of the Antioch church resting upon them. And so the predominantly Jewish church centered in Jerusalem and the predominantly Gentile church centered in Antioch were completely united in the gospel. And this deliberation about the gospel became a cause for unity in the church rather than division. A church split was avoided and they got on with the task of church planting in other parts as well. Paul and Barnabas continued to minister in Antioch as part of a team in verse 35. So what can we learn from this very important passage of Scripture today? Well, on Assembly Sunday in our Association of Baptist Churches in Ireland, I want you to realize that all our churches on this island agree on one thing, and that is the gospel the same gospel that the first apostles preached, the gospel that this first church's council in Jerusalem protected and endorsed, that salvation for everyone, regardless of their cultural or religious background, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And sometimes it takes churches to get together in council to reaffirm these matters, especially in the days in which we live when everything seems to be up for grabs. Nothing is set in concrete. Everything is fluid. Everything's open to challenge. And we have to continue to help one another as churches across this island to stand firm for the gospel and to stick to the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Membership of the Association of Baptist Churches allows us to look out for one another. It allows us to keep one another accountable on the gospel. And it allows us to work together for the advance of the gospel through the work that we do together, whether that's in Baptist missions in Ireland, France, Spain, and Peru, or in the Irish Baptist College as we train men and women to be gospel workers in our churches for the years to come, in Baptist youth as we train up our young people in the gospel and in Christian discipleship and in many other ways. So why the association? Well, I hope I've answered that question this morning. Why the association? It helps us to remain true and firm on the foursquare on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, not to deviate from it, but to hold one another accountable to it and to encourage each other as we reach out with that gospel to those around us who still need to hear it. And why the association? Because we can do more together 
than any of us can ever do on our own as local churches. The churches in Passage West in County Cork and the church in Bill Turbot in County Calvin and even the church in Katy in Armagh have come into our association, but they would not have been formed in the first place unless we were cooperating together in the work of the gospel, unless we were sharing financial resources and praying for one another and supporting the missionaries and the people that we've placed in those areas to extend the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, they would never come into being in the first place. So I trust that what happened yesterday at Church's Council up the road in Moira is a further example of what happened in Jerusalem all those years ago of churches working together for the sake of the gospel. And I trust that you and Great Vic will continue to do that in the days that lie ahead, and we will enjoy a sweet partnership in the gospel for many years to come. We're going to sing that lovely piece, O Church, Arise and Put Your Armor On. And we need that in these days, the armor of God to face all that is coming our way in coming days and to stand together for the sake of the gospel. And after we've sung this piece, uh, I'll close in a word of prayer. And then there's refreshments afterwards down at the back as well. Let's stand together as we sing.
Father, we want to say thank you for those who have served the Lord faithfully in this church in years gone by. Thank you for their faithful service. And thank you for all the new people who have been added to this church in recent years and for the fresh blood that is there and the fresh growth that we can see before our eyes this morning. And we praise you that you're still building your church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We thank that we're on the victory side and that one day we're going to see our Savior face to face in all his glory. And we're going to worship the lamb that was slain. And on that day, we'll look around at the crowd in heaven and we will see that we've come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, every conceivable background under heaven will be united around your throne on that day. And we praise you that it's through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are united. None of us deserves the least of your blessings. None of us deserves your salvation. But we praise you that through your Holy Spirit, you reach out to us. You convince us of the truth of the gospel. You show us our need and the reality of our sin. And you enable us to repent and believe the good news. And in that moment, we're added to your kingdom and we're added to your church, and we're added to your family. And so we pray that you'd bless our association of churches, especially those new churches that were added yesterday, and that as they meet for worship today, north, south, east, and west, that we would know a rich sense of your blessing upon us, a movement of your Holy Spirit in many hearts, and the joy of hearing of new stories of salvation and redemption in the lives of many people dotted right across this island, and indeed further afield. And all of this we ask for the glory of our great Savior's name, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. 